So this morning we get into the message now, all right? We've done worship, we've done all these things, we've done all these announcements, but I feel like we've gone through a lot so far. And, you know, several weeks ago I shared a message titled, Living Worthy of the Gospel. And in that message we find the Apostle Paul challenging the Philippians to live in such a manner that whatever might come their way in life, they would be ready and that they would conduct themselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. And if you didn't get a chance to hear it, I'd encourage you to find the recording on our website and give it a listen. But then if you were here last week, we looked at Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 26, where the Apostle Paul is addressing the Christian community in Galatia and Discussing the concept of living by the Spirit versus living by the flesh. And his main goal in the passage is to emphasize the importance of living a life guided by the Holy Spirit. And he compares this with the consequences of living according to one's sinful nature or fleshly desires. Also, if you didn't hear that one, you can find a record online. But it got me thinking that all the sermons we've heard over the last few weeks in our Summer at Life Spring series, the What's Your Story by Pastor Mary, Misplaced Passion by Brayden, God's Higher Standard of Love by Pastor Dan, Living the Transformed Life by Pastor Laura, Living Worthy of the Gospel and Walking by the Spirit by myself. All these sermons have to do with much more than how a person lives. What it really boils down to is our heart. Where is your heart at? Matthew 6:21 says, "For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." Mark 12:33 says, "And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself." is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And then Joel 2.13 says, And rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. The common chord among these verses is the emphasis on the heart's condition and its significance in our relationship with God. And they show us that authentic worship, love for God, and repentance requires more than superficial actions. It involves a sincere change, a transformation of the heart, not just outward displays of grief or ritual actions, which also showed me that all the sermons we've heard over the last few weeks involve the motive and manner by which we live and conduct our life. So, when I asked my wife if she would co-teach with me today and to let me know if she had any thoughts on what we should speak on, I found it quite fitting that she suggested that we talk on the topic of first love, a call to return. So this morning she'll be teaching with me and we'll be mostly in the book of Revelation looking at the church in Ephesus. And as I read through the verses in preparation for this week, there were a bunch of questions that came to my mind 
questions like, is my heart and love for God worthy of the gospel? Is my love for both God and others displayed in how I live? Do I love the Lord with all my heart? And are my actions in line with the heart of God as it was when I first believed? Do my actions display my love for God in such a way that others see my love for Jesus and a love for people who are lost so that they will experience for themselves the love of Jesus that I experience? And with everything going on in the world, with the pressures of life, am I loving others and loving God in the same manner that I once did when I first believed? Or has my love faded over time? I feel these are legitimate questions we need to ask ourselves all the time. Because with all the political noise swirling around, with all the violence, the anger, the pain and loss in seeing or hearing in the news of personal attacks against someone because of what they believe, has those things, has that affected how I view or love people? See, over time, change is rarely noticed. Just ask the frog in the pot. And you might, I believe you're familiar with that story. So I've asked a bunch of questions, but as we go into the text for today, I want you to consider this, to frame all of today's message in this, has my love, and I want you to put your name in there, has Jess's love for God unknowingly lessened? See, the enemy of your soul won't try to change your heart overnight. It's a slow fade, and Casting Crowns uh, sang that song many years ago, and it, I, I didn't think it too coincidental, but actually this week, 12 years ago, I posted the two lines from that song saying, it is a slow fade. 12 years ago on Wednesday of this week, well, that passed, and it reminded me, I was talking with some people who were walking through some challenging things in their lives. 12 years ago as a pastor, I was having that conversation with people And so it's a slow fade. A person or church on fire for Christ usually doesn't suddenly change one day. It often happens slowly. It may take a generation. Israel turned away from following the Lord in a matter of one generation. The church in Ephesus was doing all the right things, and yet they needed to repent because they had forsaken their first love. And I believe the church in Ephesus began to focus on the battle rather than Jesus. They focus on battling sin rather than on loving the Savior. I feel they focused on what they thought they should confront rather than focusing on Jesus. Slowly, duty replaced love. Slowly, religious actions and hard work replaced their love for Jesus. There is a fact that Christians ascribe to, that God created us, loves us, sent his son Jesus to this earth to show us how big, deep, wide, and high that love for us is. And then he sent the Holy Spirit to walk with us until Jesus returns. Using the Bible as a source, this book in which God speaks for himself, I want to make a case for how God feels about each one of us. He loved us before we loved him. 
Through the prophet Jeremiah, God said to his people Israel, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. Jeremiah 31.3. And then through the prophet Isaiah, God said, Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Isaiah 49, 15, and 16. And then later on in Isaiah, we also read, For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you, and my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Isaiah 54, 10. And then in a time of confession, the Israelites acknowledged God for who they knew and had experienced him to be. You are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Nehemiah 9:17. So these are just a few Old Testament examples. The New Testament, ushering the era of grace, is even more clear about God's love for us. Jesus spoke of God's love for us in this way. And you all know this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. John 3:16. And Peter continued by saying, The Lord is not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. 2 Peter 3:9. So let me wrap up my case for God's love by reading from 1 John 14, 16 and 19. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. We love because he first loved us. What I just presented was God speaking on behalf of himself and others speaking because they had experienced God's nature of love for themselves. This is the basis of our Christian belief, that we are loved by God, not because of anything we have done, but because his nature is love, and wherever there is love, it shows itself in action. Paul summed up the action of love this way, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8. So God is not silent about his love for us. He has given us a whole compilation, the Bible, made up of 66 books in which he tells his own story and invites us to love him. The invitation throughout the Bible is for us to willingly engage in a love relationship with God. If you have ever read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you can see the clear call that God makes for people, no matter where we're from or what we have done, to enter into a love relationship with him. In Genesis, the first book of the Bible, we get the impression that Prior to Eve eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God would spend time with them in companionship in the Garden of Eden. He continues to want that kind of relationship with us. It doesn't matter our race or gender or status in life. He loves every one of us and has provided a way through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for us to have a personal one-on-one relationship with him. We all know that for any love relationship to thrive and be successful, it has to go both ways. 
Quoting from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5:45, Jesus said, God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God is always giving, and we're always receiving from him. But my question for us today is, in return for who he is and how he loves us, are we giving him the love in return that he wants from us? In any relationship, when one party or the other sees a matter that needs to be addressed, usually they'll have a serious conversation. Both sides don't need to know that there is a problem for a serious conversation to be initiated. If one person is unhappy or spots problem behavior, because they're in a relationship, they can call out the other person by laying out the issue that they perceive is the problem area. And the purpose of the serious conversation is usually to bring restoration and improvement to the relationship. John, exiled to the island of Patmos, was given a vision and words that would initiate serious conversations between God and his people for centuries afterwards, including today. He wrote what is the final book in the Bible, Revelation, and that book starts out with letters from Jesus to seven churches in Asia. In those seven letters, Jesus called out the churches by name, listing what they were doing well and where there were areas in which they could improve. As humans, we, when we play make-believe, we often choose to play the part of the person we think is the hero. It's a natural tendency. So when we read the Bible, we do the same thing. We like to think of ourselves as Moses and the Israelites. But what about the times that we are Pharaoh and the Egyptians? Or we want to think of ourselves as David. But what about the times when we are Saul? Or more like Eli instead of Samuel. Even Judas instead of Peter. I learned this about myself early on as a Christian when I read the letters to the seven churches in Asia for the first time. Our own hearts can deceive us, and we can often have a higher estimation of our own faithfulness and trust in God than is true. As a young Christian reading these letters, I decided that I was like the church in Philadelphia, where Jesus said in verses 8 and 9 of Revelation 3, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. Because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name, behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Now that is a good review. <laughs> Which person who has ever followed Jesus doesn't want to hear from the mouth of our Lord himself? You have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. My perception of being like the church at Philadelphia didn't come from the Holy Spirit telling me so. Instead, it came from how I wanted to be seen, how I saw myself in my spiritual immaturity. But then one day, I sat in church and listened to a sermon like the one we're bringing to you today and realized that indeed I was like the church in Ephesus. I'd only been a Christian for a few years, but had already lost some of my first love for Jesus. I'm sure that the things written in the letter to the church at Philadelphia is true 
of some who call themselves followers of Jesus. Otherwise, this letter would not have been written for us to consider. But because we have a tendency as humans to look for the best in ourselves, instead of allowing the Holy Spirit to show us where we can improve, it might be easier to embrace the letter to the church at Philadelphia than to do the same with the letter to the church at Ephesus. So in light of all we've said about the way God loves us and how he invites us into a love relationship with him, the fact that he gets to say, you're doing all these things well, but I have this against you, is not finger-pointing. But it's a serious um, conversation that the God who is love calls us into for restoration and growth in our love relationship, we as Christians say that we have with him. All right, so as we continue here, we're, we're building up to the verses that we're going to look at here. I want us to consider the context of today's passage of Scripture. We'll be in Revelation chapter 2, verses 2 to 7 specifically. And Revelation was written to encourage persecuted Christians with the ultimate triumph of God over evil. And so John writes to seven specific churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, giving them both commendation and correction from Jesus Christ. And these messages were not only pertinent to those churches, but also serve as timeless principles for churches and for us today. Ephesus was a prominent city in Asia Minor, both commercially and religiously. And it was known for the Temple of Artemis, or Diana, in Roman culture, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This massive temple made Ephesus a central place for worship of Artemis and attracted a great number of pilgrims. And Ephesus, like many ancient cities, had its share of moral and ethical dilemmas. Christians in Ephesus were constantly challenged to maintain their distinctiveness and purity in a diverse and often ethically lax environment. Doesn't that sound like where we're living today? Hmm? Ephesus was a melting pot of various religious beliefs and other pagan practices. And within this context, standing firm in faith was no small feat. And so in Revelation chapter 2, verses 2 to 7, Jesus addresses the Ephesians' faithfulness in doctrine and their discernment against false apostles. However, he also points out their waning love, not for the doctrines or practices of the faith, but for him personally. Their fervor and passion for Christ, which was once their hallmark, had been overshadowed by their rigorous orthodoxy and works. And they are called to remember their initial devotion, to repent and to return to that first love. Everyone tracking with me? All right, good. So having established all that, our first point for today is the recognition of diligence. And we'll be reading verse 2 to 3 and verse 6. John writes, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. 
verse 6. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The church in Ephesus was no ordinary church. It was a pillar of strength and discernment. And discernment isn't merely about knowing right from wrong, but it's about distinguishing truth from almost truth. And clearly, the Ephesians did not blindly accept teachings. They weighed them against the apostolic teachings they had received, and it, which is a practical application of Acts 17.11. And they tirelessly labored for the kingdom, maintaining orthodoxy and keeping their guard against false teachings. And many of us can relate to the Ephesians. We serve in the church, engage in community outreach, and participate in Bible studies or the reading plan. We passionately defend the truth of the gospel and work hard to ensure that our ministries are effective. Yet, In the midst of commending them, Jesus gently reveals a concerning truth. Because even in their diligence, the church lacked in some areas. Church, doing things for God can never replace knowing God. Jesus' revelation to the Ephesians shows that our actions, however commendable, are incomplete if they overshadow our primary love for Christ. So the church at Ephesus had some great things going for them, and Jesus was sure to point these out. He talked about their deeds. This was an active church, active in the work of Christ. He mentioned their toil. They were not just active. They were hardworking, going above and beyond. He commended their perseverance, for they did not give up, no matter what they faced as a church. He applauded their doctrine, for they were of sound doctrine. The church at Ephesus was a happening church, and Jesus commended them heartily for that. I know the things you are doing, he said. I know your actions. They are good. But then here comes the serious part of the conversation. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. What is first love? In the romantic way, it is the single-mindedness about the person you've fallen in love with. It's excitement and dreaming. And if you've been there, you remember what that was like. In the spiritual sense, it's similar. It is the love that you had at first when you came to know Jesus, when you realized that he had saved you, rescued you, and was willing to do life with you. We want to take you back there to your story of salvation, the feeling you had of being in love with Jesus, wanting to know more about him, the hunger you had for the Bible, for the things of God, for being with his people. Years ago, I was a DJ and a radio news anchor. I was young and had never before experienced the broadcasting life, and I loved it. I still call it my favorite job. In the first few weeks, of my job, as I learned to manage the console, to make sure there were no gaps in airtime, to play the music of my choice, I didn't want to go home when my shift was over. So I hung around the studio, learning as much as I could. And then it started to feel like work. And my attitude toward being in the studio changed. I loved the job, but I no longer went above and beyond because I started to think of it as just my paying gig. I showed up, did what I was paid to do, and then left. 
Similarly, as a new Christian, I couldn't get enough of God's word and his people. I studied the word, listened to teachings on the book of John, prayed and spoke to people about my new life. But then slowly, it started to get to be not monotonous, but ordinary. It was what I did. We can do the things we do at church out of obligation, a sense of civic duty, a desire to persevere, and not out of our love for God. So here comes point two. If you're taking notes, you might want to write this down. The reality of drifting. Verse four, it says, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Ephesians' hearts had drifted from their first love, Jesus Christ. They were so absorbed in doing the work of the Lord that they had forgotten the Lord of the work. And many of us can find ourselves in a similar place. We start a Christian journey with a blazing passion, deeply in love with Jesus. But over time, the business of life, ministry demands, and the cares of this world can lead to spiritual drift. My wife shared her story of how DJing started out as a passion. And then over time, that passion just turned into the ordinary thing that she did. Or think about it in terms of this, in terms of a marriage. Imagine a couple deeply in love, celebrating their early days of marriage with surprise dates, thoughtful gifts, and undivided attention. I'm not trying to get anyone in trouble here this morning, all right? Over time, responsibilities pile up, careers, kids, mortgages. They still love each other. And work hard for their family. But the spontaneous acts of love become rare. Birthdays and anniversaries become routine celebrations. They still function as a married couple. But the passion of their early days has waned. And a church in Ephesus, in its zealous service and orthodoxy, had become like this couple. Faithful in duty, but lacking in the fervor of their honeymoon days with Jesus. While maintaining orthodoxy and a rigorous work ethic is commendable, they should never replace our intimate relationship with him. Theologian J.I. Parker reminds us that true theology is doxology. And this means that the more we understand about God, the more we understand about his nature, his works, and his love, the more we should be moved to worship him. True theology should lead us into a deeper awe, a deeper wonder and love for God. We should not become so absorbed in the study of God, theology, that we miss the heart of worship. While sound doctrine and theological accuracy are essential, they should never be an end in themselves. They should always lead us to adore, worship, and glorify God. So theology and doxology aren't separate endeavors because when the church gathers to sing, to pray, and to hear the word preach, it's doing both theology, proclaiming the truths about God, and doxology, praising God for who he is and what he has done. It's not merely about head knowledge, but about our heart response. Where is your heart this morning? We must always remember that our highest calling is to love and worship God. Amen? Point three, the restoration of devotion. 
Revelation 2, verse 5 to 7 says, Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Jesus did not say, you don't love me anymore. Just as he knows our deeds, he knows our hearts. He tells the church that toils and perseveres to return to their first love of him by remembering from where they have fallen, repenting and doing the deeds they did at first. He tells his followers to repent for forsaking their first love. This is a specific action. And then Jesus gives a directive that is individual to each person. Do the deeds you did at first. Over the years, I've gone back to this letter whenever the Holy Spirit reminds me that I have wandered away from my first love for Jesus. In my story of relationship with him, I know exactly what the things are that I did when I first came to Jesus. And I go back to doing those things. You know what the things were that you did when you first came to Jesus. I've responded to this call in the past by going back and redoing a devotional I did in those early years or rereading a book or my journal from those days. It could also be expressing my gratitude for salvation or sharing my testimony with someone who hasn't heard it. So what would doing the deeds you did at first look like in your life? What specific actions would you take? I know some of you may push back on doing some of those things because you believe that's what you did when you were still immature in the faith. But if we start with repentance and we ask the Holy Spirit to show us which of those things we need to be doing in the season we are in to demonstrate that we are serious about returning to our first love, believe me, he will show us. And then we can choose to obey. Jesus put a choice before the church at Ephesus and to us. He said, I'm coming to you, and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. We all know that there are consequences when we experience, that we experience when we don't do our part in a love relationship. But look at the promise that Jesus gives here to those who respond to his call. I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The first reference to the tree of life is found early on in Genesis. In Genesis 2, 8 and 9, it says, The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord... The Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Jesus talked about life that can be found in relationship with him. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So the reward for returning to our first love is to enjoy a full life in this love relationship with Jesus. He said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So he gave us 
and the church at Ephesus, three clear applications that we can take with us. Remember from where you've fallen, repent, and do the deeds you did at first. That is for all of us. These applications are the ones we will leave you with as they're individual to each one of us. We can allow the Holy Spirit to show us if our hearts are fully and truly turned towards God as they were when we first knew that he had saved us. If you find that they're not, then repent. Ask the Father's forgiveness for having wandered in that slow fade from where you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength to wherever it is that you find yourself now. And after you've repented, continue the serious conversation with God, asking him to show you what are the things you need to start doing again. Even as I prepared to speak to you today, I've been going back daily through one of the teaching books that had the most profound impact on the path my Christian walk would take. It is amazing for me to see how God used that book in my life, but it is also great to go back and remember how I was so hungry and thirsty for God and his word in those early days, believing that he truly could do all things because he had saved me. I want to keep returning to that place of faith, trust, and excited belief. Don't you? So the call is clear, church. The call is to reflect, repent, and return. Reflect on the early days of your faith. The moments when Christ was everything to you. Repent of letting anything, even good things, replace your primary love for Jesus. And then return to those first works, not merely in deeds, but in heart and in devotion. To forsake our first love and neglect to return has consequences. My wife talked about this. The, the lampstand symbolizes the church's witness and presence. Likewise, when we drift from our primary love for Jesus, our witness dims and our impact in a world desperate for his hope dwindles. Return, but the promise is sweet to the one who overcomes and returns to that place of intimate love of Jesus. There's the promise of eternal life signified by the tree of life. I want to leave you with this last thought, and I'd like to invite the worship team to come back up. A child receives a toy, and it quickly becomes their favorite. I've been this child before. They carry it everywhere, sleep with it, and can't imagine a day without it. As months pass, newer toys join the collection. And the once cherished toy is now left in a corner collecting dust. The toy hasn't changed, but the child's attention has shifted. In the same way, the Ephesians' passion for Jesus was overtaken by other spiritual toys, things such as deeds orthodoxy, and routines. And my prayer is that this wouldn't be our story. So as we conclude today and as the band starts to play here quietly, I urge you to do a heart check. Are you like the Ephesians, diligently serving, but drifting in your first love? Remember the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 3. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. 
Where is your love for the Lord? The message translation says it this way. If I give everything I own to the poor and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've gotten nowhere. So no matter what I say, what I believe and what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. I love the, sa- the songs we sang this morning. Give me Jesus. You can take everything of this world, but give me Jesus. Friends, as we prayed for the students and even teachers going back, you need his love. You need his instructions as you go throughout life every day. May we never forget the love of God and may we never take our eyes off the one who first loved us and continue to love him first. Amen. May we never replace the motive of love for Jesus and others with religious do's and don'ts. Let's return to our first love. Jesus awaits with open arms, ready to rekindle that flame of passion we once had for him. If the Lord has been speaking to you about returning to your first love in him, or maybe you just know that you've drifted, I'd love to pray with you and for you. Also, if you're in here today or if you're tuned in online and you don't know this love in him, today is your day to make that decision. He waits with open arms. So right where you are, I'm going to ask if you could please stand with me. We'll be closing with a song here shortly. But I want to pray with you. And the prayer team will be available as well. But with all heads bowed and eyes closed, if the Lord has been speaking to you about this, if there are things in your life, maybe intentionally or unintentionally, that have caused you to drift away from Him, maybe it's just everyday routine. Maybe it's encounters with family. Maybe it's something else. If that's you, would you just raise your hand right where you are? I don't want to call you. I just want to pray with you and for you. I see those hands. Thank you. Father, our eyes are turned towards you this morning, God. Our hearts are turned towards you, Lord. There are these who have raised their hands in here today, God, and and their desire in their heart is to return to the things they did when they first came to know you, Lord. And so, God, as they've publicly acknowledged that, Lord, you meet them right where they're at, God. You know exactly what they need, Lord. May your Holy Spirit minister to them, God. May you carry them even in this season if needs be, Lord. Whereby they've taken hits in life, whether that's from a family, whether that's from uh, just things going on around us. Lord, I pray, God, may they tune into your frequency to see themselves how you see them, God. To love themselves the way you love them, God. And as they turn their hearts towards you, God, may you rekindle their passion for you in you, God. I thank you, Lord, that you are always there waiting with open arms for us, Father. And I pray for those who may not know you or not have a relationship with you, God. 
they're hearing the sound of my voice today, God. I pray wherever they are, if they're hearing this record at a later date, God, that right now they can commit their life to you, God. And you're there with open arms to welcome them, God. Take all the things of this world, but we want you. We want you, Jesus. We want you. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen.